I'm going to invite you to take your seats at this time. We're going to transition into our morning's storytelling time. And for those of you who may be new to Evergreen, this is a time in our service when we have you guys, members of the congregation, come up and share a little bit about themselves. It's a way for us to get to know each other. And today, our storytelling coordinators, uh, Joanne and Carrie, are trying something a little bit different. They've put together a video of none other than the Sung family. So we invite you to kick back. Yeah, we can applaud for that. Thank you, Sung family, for being our experimental group here. Um, so kick back and learn a little bit about our pastor and his family. My name is Susie, and I grew up in Chicago with my parents who still live there and a younger brother who still lives there. I went to school at University of Michigan. That's where I met Peter. We've lived on um, the East Coast for in Boston and New York for a long time. And then now we've been here for about seven years, and I'm a mom to four girls. I'm a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and a wife to Peter. I'm Maddie, I'm 14, and I'm going to go into ninth grade. I'm Mia, and I'm nine, and I'm going to go into fourth grade. Actually, you just turned 10. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I'm Sophia, I'm 12, I'm going into seventh grade. I'm Emmy, I'm 16, and I'm going into 11th grade. I'm Peter, I'm the handsome, funny, loving dad, and it never stops with me the show. How long have you been attending Evergreen? We've been here since 2012. We drove onto the island on September 1st. Uh, can you think of one word that describes your mom? Generous. Teaching. She, she like teaches about every single thing. <laughs> She makes everything, uh, like, the same thing Maddie said. <laughs> <laughs> um, colorful. Can you think of one word that describes your dad? Adventurous. Obsessive. <laughs> Yeah. Obsessively adventurous? Yeah. Um, I like drawing. I play volleyball. I was going to say I like drawing too, so. And I like stand-up paddleboarding. I'm, um, I like gardening and cooking. Who gets up first in the morning? Mia. Mia. <laughs> Do you have a destination for your next vacation? Vancouver. Vancouver. Do you have a family tradition that you can tell us about? Family meetings. Doing, um, we hold court and the girls bring their complaints and uh, Susie and I, we adjudicate. <laughs> Can you tell us what's on your bucket list, just one thing, if you have one? You guys know what a bucket list is? Yeah. It's like a list of things you we want to do yeah. before you die. <laughs> I mean, I'm, talk I'm talking to Mia. So it's a list of all the buckets you like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I would like to do the El Camino walk from France to Spain. Um, I want to go to Japan. I want to go to Japan too. I want to go to Italy. Um, I want to go to Harry Potter World. I would love to walk the PCT Trail. Do you guys have a family pet? Mm-hmm. We have a dog. His name is Bear, and he's a cockapoo. And a tortoise. His name is Oliver. Okay, so there's this turtle or tortoise that Mia wanted. And um, Susie and Mia talked to me about it, and I really didn't want to do it, but um, I, let, I gave in, and Susie said she'll... Uh, get it somehow and she found it on Craigslist from a guy who was had the whole setup and he went to give it away so we bring this tortoise home and I'm not into it at all but I am into Mia and Mia's really into the tortoise and we noticed that the tortoise cage is not doing its job anymore because it's just this plastic bin and it's scratching it up and it's scratching at the corners all night it's really loud and so I decided to try to build this cage and it became an all-day project and spend way too much money on it. But now it's this beautiful wooden plexiglass uh, cage with moving parts and a lighting and heating system and it's pretty nice. So I guess the moral of the story is you don't always have to love it, you can love the person that loves it. And um, love flows down. Um, well, I was home alone and Mia told me to watch her tortoise, so, um, she told me to put it outside in our backyard, and I put it outside, and 20 minutes later I went to check on it, and I couldn't find it, and my grandma and I were looking for it, um, for about, like, 15 or 20 minutes, and she, we started, like, pulling out plants and stuff, looking underneath them, um, and it's, like, the tortoise is, like, brown and green, so it blended in with everything, and we we couldn't find it um but our backyard has like two levels to it and in between the two levels is like a rock wall made of like giant boulders so as we were going back inside our house um my grandma noticed that oliver was going inside the crack in between the two rocks because it was pretty hot that day so we're still no it climbed well we saw it climb up the rock but the scary part was that it was going to go inside the crack of the rock and if we didn't see it it would have gone inside and we wouldn't have seen it ever again because it's like very i don't we don't know it's back there so <laughs> um who is most obsessed with your telephone sophia patty Sophia. <laughs> Sophia. I don't go on my phone. Yeah, yes, you, do. you do. You're like addicted to your phone. Good morning. My name is Mia. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 17 to 19 from Proverbs 22 in the New International Version. Pay attention and turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have all them ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord, I teach you today, even you, the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Sunday school teachers. And along with them, we invite the kids to Sunday school. Have a great time, and we'll see you in a little bit. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And today we have a special guest speaker, and I'm excited to introduce him to you. Uh, his name is Pastor John March, and he is a dear, good, and old friend of mine. We go uh, many years back. Back uh, when I was in seminary and getting trained to be a pastor, I went to a school called Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and John attended the same school after I had already graduated. And I had left the school to start a church called High Rock Covenant Church, and John ended up working there as well. So we overlapped by about a year at that church. And then John went on to plant a church in uh, Edina, Minnesota, while I was a director of church planning, and so I got to work with him uh, on that project as well. And uh, we've stayed in touch, and he recommends a lot of the books that I read. Uh, I really respect uh, the way he lives his life according to his values and the way he is seeking God uh, to figure out who he is and who he is not. And uh, I'm really glad that he visits me regularly and then we talk. And so, John, come on up and tell us uh, who you are and share God's word with us. Yeah, so good to be worshiping with you. Um, I am really happy to be here. I've, as Peter mentioned, I've come out here before. I think this is my third time uh, visiting Seattle. And, and one of my favorite things to do when we come out here is to hike. We went uh, and did Mailbox Peak yesterday. So I'm a little sore <laughs> this morning. Uh, the last time I was here was at the start of Peter's sabbatical. And we did a camping trip along the Olympic Coast Trail, I think it's called. And one of the things that we did while we were there is it was, a, it was with Joseph as well. And we were, um, it was three days, two nights. And the final uh, campsite that we had to go to was on this beach. But the beach was inaccessible at high tide because it was like there were these bluffs that jutted out. And at high tide, the water was smashing uh, against these bluffs. But then at low tide, it would drop down. Oh, here's a picture. And you had to cross on these rocks at low tide. So this, this, these, water, the, these rocks are normally underwater, so you can imagine how slippery they are when they're exposed. And we have our uh, huge packs on our back because we're uh, staying out in the woods for three days and two nights with our tents and our food. And it felt like... Um, at any moment, you know, you could step on something slippery. And because you have this huge heavy pack with all the stuff that you, you want on your back, like just a little bit of a lean, you're going to lose your balance. You roll down the rocks into the ocean. And then I don't even, I was always, it's like free, like if I fall in the ocean, I don't know how I'm going to get out with this huge thing on my back. And so it was kind of this, it was a really scary part of the trip and very treacherous coming across that. And as I was preparing to come out here and preach, and thinking about wisdom and preaching on wisdom and decision making, I realized that this is kind of a nice little metaphor for how, for certain seasons that we find ourselves in in our lives. When we have to make an important decision, and it feels like the stakes are really high, it can feel like each step is really important, and sometimes it can feel kind of perilous. Like if we take the wrong step, we might slip and tumble into a really difficult situation. In addition to being a pastor, I also work as a spiritual director 
And I, I'm surprised at how often as I sit with people and listen to their stories and pray with them, people are in these sorts of situations where they're feeling a lot of anxiety and they are asking God, God, give me wisdom so that I know the next step to take. Not long ago, I met with somebody who was uh, contemplating buying a house. And for those of you who ever bought a home, you know this is a huge decision. And there's a lot of implications that uh, happen when you, when you make a decision to buy a house. And he was telling me he was out of work. His wife was working, but he was out of work. And, and the house that had come out on the market, they're kind of casually looking. But then there's this one house that was like their dream home. And it came on the market, and they knew the person. They offered it to them to buy it before it was listed. And so they were going to save a little bit of money on it. And uh, so he was really excited, and he really wanted to go for it, but his wife didn't want to go for it. She wanted to stay in their current house and remodel. And then he was kind of processing, like, well, I can't really afford it, but if I get another job, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get another job. Then I'll be able to afford it. So he was, as we sat down together, he wanted God's wisdom. What do I do? And it felt to him like the next step was really important because it could cause a significant rift in his marriage. Or it could mean that he loses out on his dream house. Or it could mean that he makes a financial commitment that could significantly alter the rest of their lives. And so he sat there and he was seeking God's wisdom for what to do next. Not long after that, I met with somebody and he was telling me that he had gotten into a conflict with somebody at work. He was coming off his shift and as he was about to leave... Somebody said something to him that was very dismissive, and he felt the need to stand up for himself. And when he did, this person challenged him to a fight. Let's go out in the parking lot. And so he felt, he was smaller and older than this person who was challenging him, but he felt like it was important for him to stand up for himself. And so he went out there. And the other person never showed up, thankfully. But when he finally, when my friend finally left work, he went home and he was so anxious and nervous, he felt threatened, he felt unsafe, and he knew he had to go back to work the next day. Couldn't sleep that night. And when I met with him, he was asking for God's wisdom what to do. He had been so upset the next day that his boss had asked him, are you okay? And he had said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, and then just left, because he didn't know what to say. And so we met, and he's asking for God's wisdom, what do I do? Do I talk to my boss about this situation or not? Because if I talk to my boss, I could be seen as a troublemaker, because nothing happened. I don't want to get labeled as a troublemaker. That might jeopardize what happens next. But if I don't say anything and then I end up getting in a fight with this guy, they might think that I started it. I could lose my job. What do I do? And he was seeking God's wisdom for the next step that felt so important and could have such huge implications for his future. Thankfully... God is eager to give us wisdom. You and I, when we find ourselves in these situations where we are uh, needing God's help in choosing the next step, and then we turn to God and we say, God, give me wisdom and tell me, show me what to do. It's in that moment that we got to know that God wants to give us wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives generously. Gives generously to all without finding fault. God wants to give us wisdom. But the reason you and I often find it so hard to receive wisdom, 
when we find ourselves in these sorts of situations where any wrong step, and we go toppling into the water, is because God's wisdom doesn't come to us as neutral instructions. Do this. Be at this place on this day. Talk to this person. God's wisdom comes to us as an invitation to live a life of trust. And that is hard. That's what makes wisdom really hard for us to receive because wisdom isn't just random like GPS directions. It's an invitation to live a life of trust. That's the primary point of our passage for today. This is um, the passage for today, the section that Mia read for us, is the first of 30 sayings that unfold over the next few chapters. And these sayings existed outside of Israel. And the author in Proverbs had taken this collection of sayings and then inserted references to the Lord into them, recognizing that this wisdom only made sense in the context of a relationship with Israel's covenant God. And here at the outset, in this first of 30 wisdom sayings, he gives us the purpose. This is the purpose of all these wisdom statements that are going to follow. He says, I teach you this wisdom so that your trust may be in the Lord. Israel's covenant God. Author makes it explicit. He's teaching us wisdom so that we will trust God. Wisdom requires trust because for Christians and for the Jewish people, it's relational. We're in this relationship with God and wisdom is born out of the context of that relationship. Not a how-to manual for life. When we're trying to figure out what the next step is, going to God, he's not going to give us GPS directions. He's not like looking up on Google Maps. It's an invitation to take the next step from a place of trust. When we acquire wisdom, we let go of our self-sufficiency. We let go of our, like, our tendency to control the circumstances. And we learn to live a life of dependence and trust. This echoes kind of what I think of as like the purpose statement of the book of Proverbs. That famous verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Wisdom is connected to submission to surrender, to letting go, and to trusting. Right? It's not information. If you could get wise just by like reading how-to manuals, that'd be a different story. But we all know that. You, you can be book smart and a very unwise individual. Wisdom comes as we let go of our own understanding and learn to submit to God in the context of this covenant relationship of love. So in receiving God's wisdom is this step of trust and of surrender and of letting go. So let's, let's look at just a couple examples. So like, if I have an opportunity to take a new job, and that job is going to come with long, long hours, wisdom says to me, the saying, do not wear yourself out to get rich. But this proverb only works in the context of a relationship. Of trust. To follow this proverb, I have to trust that God cares for me. 
Apart from me trusting that God cares for me, I can't follow the proverb, do not wear yourself out to get rich. I have to trust that money isn't the final measure of my worth or my success. And I have to trust that God's presence is better than a big bank account. Or when I feel discouraged about maybe some new project I'm invited to take on, and I think, I can't do that. I just want to stay at home and watch Netflix in my pajamas. Sit on the couch with my phone and just binge a new series. And I think, well, I should probably get up and, and, and do some work on this new project. But then I think, ah, oh, I can't. My cohort, they're, they're too difficult. Or my boss doesn't give me any latitude or support or resources. I can't do these stands in the way of everything. And in that moment, wisdom says to me, the sluggard says there's a lion outside. This reminds me that maybe deep down, our reason for not wanting to start this project isn't some problem out there, but some spiritual sickness in here. In order to live out this, pro- this proverb and step out and engage in this work that feels risky and like a potential for failure, I have to trust that God is with me, that he loves me, and that my identity is beloved. So that I'm strong enough to step out and fail and be okay with who I am. The wisdom of Proverbs only works in the context of relationship built on trust. This wisdom can only be heeded if we have a spiritual life rooted in faith that God is near to us. We only follow this wisdom if we trust in God's promises to us. That's what the author of this passage is pointing out. The purpose of these wisdom statements is to lead us into this trusting relationship because without trust we're not going to become wise and do the right and true things and walk in the way of wisdom a few years ago uh, my wife and I were teaching this parenting curriculum to some parents young parents of children it was a curriculum that somebody else wrote but we just love it's called discipline that connects to a child's heart and and the it's really just practical wisdom like parenting wisdom And the basic premise is that unconditional love for your kids must undergird everything that you do. So in order to do any sort of parenting, the first step is the kids have to feel safe. They have to know that they are loved. That's especially true if you're going to do any discipline of your kids. It can't be about them performing or measuring up. They have to first know that they're loved. And then from that place, you can say, okay, you're all so gifted. And you have responsibilities in your life, and so you're accountable to steward those gifts and those responsibilities, and then discipline is that. It's a very loving and dignifying way to discipline your children. So my wife and I, were trying to teach this curriculum, this wisdom literature to other parents, and I remember as we were teaching it, one dad reacting very strongly uh, against it, kind of even like freaking out. And he said something along the lines of, this isn't how the real world works. In order to make it in the world, you have to perform. People don't care about connecting. They care about results. Nobody at my job cares how I feel. Nobody in my workplace cares about my gift set. When we apply to colleges, they don't want to know, you know, what your um, gifts are or how you feel. They just want to know, what score did you get on a test? And so he was resistant, this like paying attention to feelings and love in the context of holding his child accountable. And as I was hearing him freaking out, all I was hearing was his pain. And for him, he couldn't follow wisdom 
Because as he faced pressures at his work, he couldn't let, like, let go of the external circumstances, let go of his performance. He was living all out here. He couldn't move inward to a place of trust and surrender to God. Trusting that God's unconditional love for him gave him intrinsic worth at his work. And so as he was parenting, he was kind of having the same um, anxiety that he felt at work towards his kids. He was so nervous about them performing that anytime they made a mistake, he just needed to correct their performance so badly. Because there wasn't that trust and that love underneath it. Because he didn't trust, he couldn't receive this wisdom. When we trust, we have to let go of our compulsive need to control, our compulsive need to like, manage circumstances and external appearances, and we have to move into a deeper place in our spirit where God dwells. That unseen, hidden place that is our spiritual life where all of wisdom emerges from. All of wisdom is rooted in these unseen, hidden realities of who God is and how this world works but which we receive through faith and not sight. We have to trust that the spiritual life with God is the truest and deepest part of who we are. And so when you and I, when we're traversing the slippery rocks of life and we're longing for wisdom, this is really hard because we just want to fix the circumstances. We get distracted by the external circumstances and we want the next right step that will fix the external circumstances. We get distracted by the financial stress or the conflict we have with other people or by whether or not our friends will like us. And so we want God to just tell, what do I do, God, so that this problem gets resolved? We don't want to live by the unseen, hidden truths of faith, God dwelling in us. We want certainty and control. But wisdom is rooted in these deep spiritual truths. And heeding it requires trust and surrender. Which is why in the New Testament, wisdom is something that comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into us and gives us wisdom. But again, not wisdom that's specific instructions, not turn-by-turn directions about every step you're supposed to take in your next career transition. It's the sort of experience that moves in us that evokes trust and surrender to God. 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a congregation that is obsessed with wisdom. Like their idea of a good time was to go to the market square and listen to philosophers, which sounds maybe a little you know, weird to us, but really they're just a congregation full of obsessive podcasters, right? Just consuming as many different versions of wisdom as they can and trying to figure out which one they think is the best and which one they want to follow. And to them, Paul writes this, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul's criticizing much of sort of what was public square wisdom as wisdom of the world because it's that practical knowledge that doesn't invite a person to live by trust. It's practical how-to knowledge that isn't rooted in relationship. It's rooted in self-reliance. It's rooted in being strong and looking good on the outside and being in control. It's leaning on one's own understanding. That's the wisdom of the world. But the wisdom of God, Paul says, looks like Christ crucified. Christ, God incarnate, dying, persecuted for us. God's wisdom looks like weakness, rejection, failure. When I sit with people and they're searching for that next right step to take, looking for God's wisdom in their life, it's surprising to me how often God's wisdom emerges out of this sort of felt weakness, the weakness of God. God's wisdom comes in the quiet, invites us to trust and surrender. And this mirrors the weakness of Christ on the cross. Like God comes so gently into our lives that it feels weak. God is so unwilling to violate our will, to control us, to force us to do something, that it feels like he's not even helping us. We just want to tell me what to do, tell me what to do. But he won't do it. He won't force us to obey him. God's spirit is so gentle, it feels weak, like Christ on the cross. God's wisdom comes through the Holy Spirit, evoking love, inviting us to trust and surrender as we take the next step of uncertain faith, trusting in the Lord. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about kind of what this feels like to get God's wisdom that evokes trust in us. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of the age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for a glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is writ- as it is written, what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for us, those who love him, these are the things that God reveals to us, the wisdom of God coming to us by his spirit. Paul's attempt to describe what it feels like to get God's wisdom, it's this, it's this feeling that the spirit comes into us and it's what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, It's unimaginable love for you. That's God's wisdom. 
moving inside of us, coming to us. This is what God's Spirit sounds like when it speaks wisdom to us. Best exemplified in the cross how for us God is. He's willing to send his son to die for us. Feels weak. Does not associate with specific GPS turn-by-turn instructions. But the purpose of wisdom is trust. And the way that we get there is by this unimaginable love the Spirit stirs within us. Because we know of God's deep love for us, we, we trust him. He's so for us. So we can surrender, submit our understanding, and lean on him. Let me give you an example of what this looks like of a character from church history. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, one of the things he's known for is teaching people how to listen, discern the voice of the Spirit, and make good decisions, kind of listening to God's concrete, everyday lived wisdom. And his kind of first awakening to this came as he lay in a hospital bed in Loyola. He was in the hospital because he was wounded in battle where he was trying to prove his mettle. A a cannonball lands close by and the shrapnel hits his leg and breaks his leg in multiple places. This is the 16th century. He's in the hospital. In order to fix his leg, they have to re-break it multiple times. He keeps having to go under surgery. No anesthetics. And so he's bedridden. For a long period of time, he's super discouraged. He's in a lot of pain. And this is like a very transformative moment for him. Prior to the injury, he was kind of like most other young men. He's out there trying to make a name for himself. He's obsessed with external appearances. And he's trying to do this by climbing the hierarchy of status by like challenging random people to duels and then like beating them. Like on the road, just challenging random people to a duel. So he wants to build up this reputation as a warrior. This is the ancient equivalent of like pimping your LinkedIn resume, right? He's just trying to get the best external self that he can. He's also really into chivalry, which kind of sounds like, oh, he's nice to women. That's not quite what that meant in his context. What it meant was he was thinking of these extraordinarily heroic acts that do for women. So he's basically just like his whole purpose in life is beating men and wooing women. And then this cannonball comes, breaks his legs, and he's sitting there going, feeling like his life is falling apart, like he's on the slippery rocks, and everything's about to fall apart for him. Worrying about the fact that he's never going to look good in tights again because of his broken leg, and he's going to walk with a limp. But he's stuck in bed, and and he's got to recover, and he's trying to figure out how do I get back to um, being physically fit enough that I can fight battles and build my reputation? How do I start these conquests of chivalry? Where should I begin? But he's got to wait, so he asks for some reading material. It's a religious hospital, so somebody gives him a book on Jesus and the life of the saints, and he starts reading about Jesus. Starts reading about the saints, And as he lies in bed wondering about what's he going to do after he gets released from the hospital, a vision for an unimaginable future starts to unfold. It's not beating men and wooing women. It's giving all his possessions away and committing his life in service to our Lord. He reads of St. Francis of Assisi and he wants to do what he did. And as he does this, he starts to like fantasize about this unimaginable future 
of following Christ with a total sold out surrendered trust. Holy Spirit starts moving in him and he starts feeling happy. He starts feeling full of love. He starts feeling full of joy and hope and purpose and peace and meaning. So he'll like, he's just stuck in bed. So he'll have like an hour or so of doing this. And he'll notice that after he's had these fantasies about becoming like St. Francis, that he feels these fruits of the spirit type things, not totally aware of what it is. And then he'll kind of forget about that and he'll go back to like, fantasizing about chivalry and fantasizing about duels and becoming great in the eyes of the world and managing external appearances and trying to be better than everybody around him. And he notices that after he spends some time fantasizing about that, he feels anxious and agitated and alone and despairing. And so he pays attention to the way God's wisdom comes to him in this felt experience of love as he imagines this unimaginably great future of trusting and surrendering our Lord. I don't know, you know, what everybody here individually, what you guys are all going for, but there's always, it feels like these sorts of situations where we're unsure what the next step is, it feels like they're coming up all the time in our personal lives. And when that happens to you, individually or even communally as you guys move into the next season for the church, as you try and figure out what's the next step that we take. God wants to give us all wisdom, but it's not going to be that, most of the time, it's not going to be that specific, like this is the next step, this is the next step. It's going to come as this experience of the Holy Spirit's love that's going to move in us so deeply that we're going to feel free to surrender all that we have and all that we are in trust as we follow God in faith. So wherever you are, I would invite you to seek the wisdom of the Spirit fills your heart with love so that you can live a life of trust and surrender. Let's pray. God, we give thanks that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we are here obsessing about how good we look in front of other people, your spirit can come and move in our hearts, filling us with an awareness of your deep love and the grace and the goodness that you want to show us as we move into an unimaginable future. God, do that now. Grant us taste and see and experience the love of your Holy Spirit so that we might live lives of trust and surrender. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.